We are in Champions League, man. That was my Dilly din, dilly dong, come on. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kearney. Hello, welcome to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. My name is Gary Kernin. This is the third and final episode from the Modern Soccer Coach Roadshow that Dan Abrams and myself did in Chicago last month. We had Tony Strudwick, Arna Friedrich, and this episode is Todd Bean. Todd is the founder of Tovo Academy in Spain. He's a passionate advocate for holistic development, as you are about to hear. He founded the Johan Cruyff Institute of Sport. He's a former teacher, coach, player in the US. We talk development, decision-making, cultures. You're going to love his perspective, his ideas, his philosophy, and I think how he challenges coaches, especially here in the US. Let me know what you think, at Gary Kernin on Twitter, at Gary Kernin on Instagram. This podcast is brought to you by Sports Lab 360, a new and innovative program online focused on youth development from a tactical and soccer IQ perspective. If you haven't come across their program, I highly recommend checking it out. Perfect for any coaches looking to go the extra mile to enhance the developmental experience for their players. We've got more coming up about how to receive an exclusive Modern Soccer Coach podcast offer, so make sure you check that out. Here is Dan and Todd. Enjoy. Welcome. Thanks. Am I <laughs> working? Okay, here we go. Yeah. I've got one to throw at you first. Read an interview with you. You said football is a mathematical art. Can you explain? I said that. You yeah, said okay. That. <laughs> yeah, I think um, reflecting upon that, I think football is mathematical in that it's geometric and it's algorithmic. So we think of geometry, it's a game of angles and distance and lines and situation. Um, triangles and diamonds in the way that we interpret it and play it and try to teach it but it's also uh, an art in that it's uh, it's subjective it requires great skill it's a game of beauty but and I may piss off Raymond Verheiden in saying this but it is not objective it's completely subjective and I think that's very much artistic component of it so and it's algorithmic on the mathematical side it's a series of if-then relationships and decision-making that children have to make or young or all-stars have to make. Um, and so if you look at it mathematically, but you appreciate the beauty and the artistic side, you come away with kind of that uh, a holistic approach to enjoying it as a spectator, which I am, and also as a coach. For someone who was bad at maths, so for someone who struggles in arithmetic, does that player then struggle to make decisions on the face? Is that straight a correlation, do you believe? I don't think so, because you know you have players that you know, may or may not doing well in school. It's not like you have all Einsteins on the, on the, uh, any national team, right? That's not the point, but children are mathematical in that they understand relationships. So they, they, they move from an egocentric self outward. So they understand themselves, relationship with mother and father, relationship with siblings, relationship ultimately with teammates. And if you just train that relationship, they understand triangles and diamonds. That's as far as we have to go. You don't even have to get into rhombuses or anything complicated. Um, but if you just work within triangles and diamonds, that's going to get you pretty far in football in terms of understanding those relationships. And kids do that naturally. We don't have to teach them to, to decision-making. They do it every day. We don't have to teach them perceptive skills. They do it every day. We just have to apply them to the football field. And, and children from 6 to 26 can do that. In the U.S., we have the most educated players academically in the world, I'm just guessing, because everyone else in the U.S., we had draft day today for women's soccer. Everyone's drafted from college. They're all drafted from really, really good schools. Does that give us a competitive advantage with decision-making, or you know, is there still a big gap? Yeah, unfortunately, the research suggests that this concept of transferability is more fallacy than truth. So if you want to be good at chess, let's say, as a mathematical, it's spatial relationships, it, those skill sets to play chess don't necessarily transfer directly onto the football pitch. Um, so if we look at the research on transferability, if you want to be good at football, you're going to have to play some football. And if you're intelligent to manage relationships, okay, that's going to help you. 
Um, but it's like anything that, the, you know, the connect questions of genetics versus training. Uh, it's the same thing. Of course, you have some predisposition, but ultimately you, you develop what you train. And I think that's the most positive message because it gives any kid a chance to train what they are passionate about. So they can become a footballer, or they can become, you know, a nurse, uh, they can pursue art, science, dance. Uh, and I think sometimes we prejudice kids too young and, and not allow them to play through that system and see ultimately where they end up, time will tell. But I don't think we have to be judge and jury of eight-year-olds and decide if they're getting D1 scholarship, scholarships, right? So I think uh, kids naturally play. Once you tap into that, that emotion, I like that, you know, as you're older, maybe it's discipline, but the motivation for a child is certainly the motivation of joy and learning. So I don't, think, uh, I don't think young players across the country here have any advantage, but they certainly have great opportunity because there are probably better facilities here in the United States than anywhere else in the world. So um, whether we use them well or not is another story, right? Todd, you, when we spoke um, a couple of months ago on my, on, on my podcast, you know, you talked about, as you're talking there, about football is about um, geometry, it's about lines, it's about space, it's about timing, timing of running, etc., etc. Stuff that not being a football coach goes over my head, but what you said, or the impression I got, was that there's that element, but enveloped in that is the psychosocial side. That players, yes, it's tech, it's tack, it's physical, but to get the most from that, to optimize the geometry of the game, you've got to be right here, you've got to get the psychosocial stuff correct. And at your place in Barcelona, I know you're doing a lot of that stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, we start with managing oneself. And I mean, I grew up here. So I grew up in Connecticut playing soccer in high school, went on to college in New Hampshire, and then taking the ball around a little bit back in the old day with some, uh, you know, at the professional level. And everything, I think it's still predominant today. The way that we approach football was through a technical centric approach. The philosophy is a logical one. I think it's not a correct one, but it's a logical one. That is, if we break the game down into its technical parts, we can teach those technical parts, teach a kid 50 moves, a Kreif turn, Ronaldinho step over, Ronaldo shot a messy dribble. So if we collect a series of technical actions, then we have a complete footballer. Well, we've been doing that for 35 years, and we haven't a team that could beat Trinidad and Tobago. So why would we continue on that? What I, what I learned in working, um, in full disclosure, with my father-in-law, uh, Johan, was he saw the game in terms of spatial relationships and the exploitation of space. So as a thought. So I grew up for many years in the United States, and it's still predominant today, thinking that execution is the most critical element of football. And then I learned late in life that what happens if you looked at football and the first thing you focused on was a thought. How would that change your training? Well, come to find out it changes it tremendously. I mean, with all due respect to people here, you look at most, most of the presentations here, they're based upon a technical-centric pattern. I'm gonna help a child kick a ball, pass a ball, shoot a ball, dribble a ball. But if you start from a thought, I'm gonna help a child think through the game to exploit space, and in order to do that, I call upon a technical action. It is a completely different paradigm. And you have to change your training completely. And the most important part of that is managing oneself. Perception, conception, the decision, maybe some deception. The execution, that's where you call upon the technical article. And then the assessment of the efficacy of that action. So if you think about thinking first, your entire way to approach the pedagogy of football training changes dramatically. And, you know, it's easy to say, but it's so deep-seated in my home country here that it's almost impossible to change. I'm working on it as best I can, and I know there's other people that are doing a great job, but we have to completely redesign and rethink the way we train our young people if we expect to get out of CONCACAF. But more than that, if we even expect to have a lower dropout rate for children, because no child wants to go to training and be bored silly doing mindless drills. And since 75% of our children are dropping out at 13, that means that we as coaches are making a game not fun. How many conventions do we need to do to learn that? 
we are taking a game that is inherently fun, inherently motivating, inherently social, inherently psychological and social relationships that built into it, and we're making it not fun. That's on us as coaches, and I think it's because we have the wrong paradigm, the way we go out and train every day. I'm very much into the skill acquisition side of things, and you have your own terms for it, so what we have within psychology would be, called, would be called the cognitive cycle. So it's search, decide, and execute. Search, decide, and execute. And I know you have your own words. And reading what Javi Hernandez said growing up at uh, La Masia between the age of 11 to 14, and he said that the, the emphasis was on... I mean, he just, he just cut it down to thinking, 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 thinking. So here's an 11-year-old, 12-year-old, 13-year-old, 14-year-old who every single second of every single session is just the, the load on his brain. is just thinking, 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 thinking. So he's having to learn his technique within a, like an overwhelm of mental intensity. In essence, that's what you're saying is a big key behind yeah. getting to... I mean, imagine going to... Okay, I just went to the bar, right? So if I go to the bar and I can choose a beer and pizza or just a beer, I take the beer and the pizza. I get both, right? So now apply that to football. If I do a technical drill, what do I get? Well, the research suggests not very much. But let's just say I'm going to do it anyways, because I live in the United States and that's what I'm told to do. So I do a technical drill. At maximum, I improve the player's ability to do that drill. Not apply that skill in a game, but to do the drill. So I can be happy, I can line him up, and the parents will say, oh, he's so good. I make a coaching point. Susie, pick it to Johnny. Johnny, you pick it to, you know, kick it to Daniel. It will look good. Set up some cones and put on, you know, all sorts of apparatus and I make it look good. But at the end of the day, I only get one thing a child kicking a ball. But if I choose a different exercise and they get a challenging cognitive exercise, what's included in that is the value of executing that decision, which is the technical part of the game. So I get pizza and a beer. I get technical and cognitive. But more than that, if I put in opposition, I also get character. So for one drill, I can get cognition, competence, and character. Whereas many coaches in the United States get one thing. They get a child that kicks the ball back and forth, and then they scream at them on the weekend because they don't understand why they're not doing it well in the weekend's match. They're not doing it well in the weekend's match because you haven't trained them to think and kick and have the character to compete. Again, we get what we train. And if we just train technique, we don't get what is required to play the game at not even the highest levels, just at every weekend. Because a thought is associated with every pass of the ball. And every great player that you listen to talks about that. And I think we even, you know, and aren't speaking. How many players can pass the ball? A lot. So I'll tell you a story. What Johan said is, you know, at Barcelona, you're at the highest level. He says, I could choose any number of players that are technically good. So that's not the selection process. At that level, people can pass a ball. People can receive a ball. People can shoot a ball. So what's the distinguishing factor at the highest level? It's where, when, why, to whom, and in what relationship, with what pace, with what timing. What decision do I make at a given moment? But I would argue that's not just for Barcelona. I would make the argument that that's for the youngest levels. It's a lot more fun to make decisions and make autonomous decisions in real time than it is to have a coach barking at me or telling me to pass it to point A and point B. I think most coaches that put, had to go through their own training would be bored in 20 minutes. But we impose it upon our own children. Why not make it dynamic, learning, engaging, fun, where cognition, competence, and character are in play? Because that's part of the psychology of the game. Managing oneself in the environment, making autonomous decisions within that environment, supported by a coach that helps you improve the decision-making process. And as a byproduct of that, you're gonna to learn to pass the ball and receive the ball, but when you do that, it's not gonna be in linear fashion, it's gonna be in a 360 fashion, which is what the game has played. So I know I probably piss a few people off with these comments, but I couldn't be more emphatic about this game is not linear, it's multi-directional, it's based upon thought, and it's based upon the execution of that thought, at which point you call upon a skill, not the other way around.
you don't think I'm going to go do step over moves and let me just go dribble step over moves and find some place to do it. No, the game presents the challenges, the mathematical challenges, the solutions. I've got to find them and then I have to execute them. And if you start to train in that way, then you're going to allow for six-year-olds to make decisions that are cognitively faithful to their level. And you're going to allow for the 26-year-olds to make them more complex and, and play for the German national team. But I think, I, I'm serious when I say it, I think we've got it painfully wrong. And I think the end product of that is our best players are not good enough on the world stage. And they are our best players. So we, what we do, we look for players in Germany that have U.S. passports because the U.S. born and bred and played, very few of them are good enough to compete at the world stage. And that's the end elite product of a system that we, all 30,000 of us, in the United Soccer Coaches Convention, uh, are responsible for. And that's on us, that's on me. So if I just continue the status quo, I'm going in 35 years, I won't be around in 35 years, but in 35 years, somebody's going to be sitting here saying we're still not good enough. So I would rather have a change happen now, and in 35 years we're talking about a different type of player that we've developed, because today, in 2019, we've completely redesigned our training paradigm. And in doing so, the beneficiaries are the 12s, 10, 8-year-olds, and 6-year-olds on the pitches you know, out, the, out tomorrow afternoon throughout the country. So, as I said, I think it's, okay, it's provocative, but I don't think there's any research that would support the 35 years that we've just lived through in the United States. Not much has changed since 30 years ago in terms of training. It's become more professional. It's become more costly. There's better facilities. Yes, there's a greater number of coaches. The uniforms are better. I, I know because I just saw my high school uniform. I jog it out of the closet. So there's a number of things. The shoes are better. There's so many things that are better. The equipment's better. But fundamentally, that doesn't change football. Training has to be better. And if training's better, you get better players. If education's better, you get more intelligent students. In any industry, if innovation is part of, the, in, part of it, you get a better product. And unfortunately, in my opinion, we haven't changed much in 35 years. I mean, significantly changed. Not the superficial, but the real significant, which is pedagogy of the way we approach the art and the craft of, of teaching. I listened to um, Jose Mourinho give a lecture about four years ago. He said there was, he said there was two types of players. He said there was a decision maker. He was, told he was going to his Real Madrid team as a reference point. Xavi Alonso, decision maker. Then you had the athlete that was the Di Maria that played on instinct. Uh, and I think Valdano agreed with him on it. And, and I actually thought it was genius at the time. But now what you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you should be trying to improve the instinctive player because he's gonna hit, he or she are gonna hit a wall at some stage. Would, would you, is that what you think? Yeah, so I, I think you come to the semantics. So what is, when you describe a player that's instinctive, walk that through with me. What, 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 would, you, what would you say about that player? When you say a player is instinctive or they are intuitively intuitive, what do you mean? Describe that player that... Yeah, I would say they're quick. They're getting by on athleticism. They're not in situations that there's three or four different decisions. They're in situations that you get that ball, 1v1, take them on, or ball over the top, run onto it. So yeah, so less variables in the decision. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, when you talk about those types of players at the highest level, I think they're all, you know, I think they're all excellent, obviously. They've, they've made it through the ranks, so they're all good. And, and then when you start to talk about the detail between which type of player is better suited for what position, Obviously, you look at the structure of modern football. You get a fast player that's good on 1v1, can either find their way to the end and cross it or put them on the opposite side, have them go down, cut in like a Coutinho and find the back of the net through the internal. That's a tactical decision by a coach to put a player where he or she feels will be suited best to bring out the best qualities. So this is something that I think the best coaches in the world do. They read people. You were talking about Alex Ferguson. You know, my brother-in-law played for Alex, you know, uh, years ago. Um, What was genius, as we talk about? We talk about people management. We talk about making, bringing out the best qualities of players. I think that's what all great coaches do, is to find what are the qualities within a player at that level, and what position will I put them in so that their best qualities shine. But also not to expect a player like Eusebio, for example. Uh, Eusebio's coach at Real, uh, excuse me, uh, at Girona, and he played for Johan. 
Johan said that every season that he showed up preseason, he was sure he was going to sell him. Right? He, was, he, was, he, wasn't, he wasn't a flashy. He wasn't Romario. He wasn't Kuman in the back. He wasn't Pep Guardiola. But he was a player that had a role to play when you put him in a certain situation that he could complete his role. And he often spoke about making sure that each player understands their own qualities. The moment that Eusebio thought he was Romario, you have a problem. But as long as Kuman knew his role, Romario could be a magician, Pep could run the show, and then Eusebio could put in the work. It was a team that they call the dream team in Barcelona. And I think the best coaches in the world understand what are the qualities that this player brings to a team, and can it complement strengths and weaknesses of other players? And if you put 11 of those together under a coherent and consistent philosophy, you get Sir, uh, you know, Sir Alex Ferguson's Man United, you get you know, Sachi's Milan, you get you know, Cruyff's Barcelona. I think all of them have had that capacity to understand what is within psychologically, their discipline, their habits, their qualities, and yes, their speed, their fitness, their strength, their size. And if you put those people independently in a collective environment and manage it well, you get the teams that you know, people speak about for ages. And those are hard teams to create. You know, there's still people, you know, Pep's, Pep's Barcelona, Cruyff's Barcelona, Sachi's Milan, Sir Alex Ferguson, uh, Wenger's Arsenal. These are teams that took individuals, found the best nature within them, Vieira, Bergkamp, Henri. I mean, just think about what Arsenal put onto that pitch. None of them the same, each respected for the individual qualities they brought, but somehow had a trust and a relationship that put really inspiring football on. And I think that's the hardest part about coaching. I think teaching kids how to kick a ball back and forth is easy hanging fruit. Strengthening their psyche so that they can make autonomous decisions and recover with resilience those that do not go well, I think that's the hardest part of coaching. Just take a short break to remind anyone listening to set aside a few minutes of your day to check out Sports Lab 360, a new online program focused on player development from game understanding and soccer IQ perspective. The program empowers you as a coach to control the tactical development of your players outside time spent on the field. You can use the platform to assign soccer homework to your players, selecting modules that coincide with the tactical focus of training. Players work through the module that you assign, they see game film examples, engage with animated interactive lessons, and then take a quiz at the end to check for understanding. It helps you identify potential areas of development on a team and player basis while optimizing the limited time you have on the field with your players. Sports Lab 360 are excited to offer MSC listeners 15% off club or team subscription with the code ROADSHOWPROMO1. Again, Highly recommend checking out their stuff. It's easy to use and very practical with real and tangible results. Back to the roadshow. Johan Cruyff and intuition. I have an interview posted, it's up today, with uh, Jose Maria Baquero. And he said the difference between Van Hal and Cruyff was that with Van Hal, you knew what was happening on the 27th of July every year. But with Cruyff, you didn't know what was happening every day. Well, to say that for a US coach, they'd say, well, he's, he or she's not organized. Or you know, are we too structured in the wrong way? Or do, or do we value the wrong things over here? Or, or you know, how does a coach, Dan talked about charisma yeah, before. Yeah. How does a coach excite people a bit more? I mean, if you think about the United States, we come from what we call a Cartesian model. So it's the idea that we dissect things like I mentioned before. We dissect school into subjects, subjects into sub-subjects. We put children in schools, 45 minutes, ring a bell, they go think about something else, right? So on a soccer field, we've done that the same way. We've broken it down. So the reason Van Gaal knew, nice man, by the way, but the reason he knew what he was going to do 10, 10 years down the line was because that's why he carried that thick notebook. That was his agenda, right? So, um, but it's his approach to the game. But Johan, I, I best describe it. Okay, I'll tell you a story. So, we were invited, oh, he was invited and I got to go, so let's put it that way. He was invited and I got to tag along to the Palco, the, the nice seats, the president of Barcelona. And so Johan was in there, and you, when you get the nice seats, you get free wine and some hors d'oeuvres. That's where everybody goes at Barcelona. If you want to know where all the guys in the fancy seats are going at halftime and why they're late, it's because they've got wine and beer and great you know, hors d'oeuvres. So 
I don't think Johan's paying attention. That's my first game watching with Johan. I don't think he's paying attention. And because we sit down and we're just a few minutes because he gets sidetracked by people, autographs and pictures and so forth. And we sit down and as he's sitting down, he says, shakes his head, he says, yeah. Yeah, Torre plays too many balls backwards. Yeah, yeah, Torre when he was playing in Barcelona at the time. And I'm like, he had a glass, half a glass of wine in the meantime walking down. It took him the time from the top of the stairs down the bottom of the stairs, and I thought, there's not any way he could possibly know that. So I went back and saw later, I went home and I saw the replay of the game, and four out of the first five passes, Torre played backwards. And it drove Johan crazy. Because the opportunity is to go forward, you play forward if it's on. And it was on in his mind. So the understanding of spatial relationships, you may call it intuition, so maybe Johan was intuitive, but it was really, what it was, was he had seen patterns so many times from a young boy on how to exploit space and how to use your position play to exploit that space, and then the ball would move through that space. And so that became intuition, but what it was, was a deep recess of his mind seeing so quickly a number of variables. And he was very, very mathematical. He was very good with numbers. He, he, he passed away without a cell phone, but if I asked him Michelle Patini's number, he would know it. So somehow, over time, he developed an understanding, deep in the not short-term memory, but long-term memory, the capacity to chunk bits of information. And when you chunk bits of information spatially, you have a football team, or you have a sub-rondo within that structure, or you have a small position play game. So when he trained, he trained rondos, position play games, and training games, so that the players themselves would see the architecture, the sub-architecture that he saw intuitively, but remember, he was kicking the ball around from three years old in the streets of Amsterdam. So intuition was just a long series of training and his capacity to see things in chunks of relationships, and then try to teach Pep Guardiola you know, how to find Romario within those relationships. So I think some coaches are more analytical. And for sure, if you, Tom was here, we had a pizza and a beer. Um, did a session today at five o'clock. And um, the questions were very analytical. And he, was, he, he mentioned one time, he said, they're in a good exercise. They're executing decisions. They're scoring goals. They're having fun. Why do I need to intercede? what do I have to say that is more important than what's going on in the field right now? And I love that. I love, so I was just having, I bought him a piece of beer. I took some notes from his session. I think that's it. I think we tend to micromanage and then we have so much self-importance that we're willing to interrupt a very good exercise so that we can hear ourselves tell a child what to do when ultimately they need to know what to do on the weekend. I mean, it sounds silly when you put it that way, right? So I love that set. Thank you, Tom. I love that session today because it allowed players to explore their environment, to have fun doing it, score some goals, hit some crossbars. And then he would step in, change the exercise, nurture what he wanted to come out of those sessions, but then let the players work through that environment. So I think if we have any flaw here, it's that we try to dissect too much and we try to intercede too much in a natural learning process that's created by the selection of exercises that we put forth. So I think, I agree with them. If we create a good training session, what I want to elicit from that session will come through in a dynamic way. If I have to stop every three, four, five minutes and explain again and again what I'm looking for, I failed in creating that session, in, in my opinion. Can any player, any young player, learn that game intelligence, that intuition, that relationship between space and, and ball and man, the kind of intuition and intelligence that Johan Cruyff had and uh, a Javi Hernandez has and uh, Iniesta, can anyone learn that? And I suppose joint with that question, because I was having a conversation with Willie McNabb from Celtic, who's here this week, and we were saying, we were talking about this kind of stuff in in a, a less articulate way but um, and we were saying that the challenge in British football for young players is introducing how do we introduce this kind of stuff doing it because you you say you've got a series of 10 or 15 exercises that helps them are they when they do that with you are they learning it implicitly through the exercises or are you explicitly talking to them about space and timing and geometry and 
So there's kind of two or three questions in there. Yeah, Can anyone no, learn I would it and say, how? No, explicitly, we introduced 14 principles of play. And they're principles that can be applied to six-year-olds till 26-year-olds in terms of principles. That's what principles are. Right? Values should just be for you know, a 12-year-old or a 15-year-old or a 75-year-old. Right? I mean, values are also timeless in this way. Right? They're core values. So we work with 14 principles of play, and we introduce them from very young ages. But the fundamental difference, I would say, between traditional training and Tovo training is that we front-load cognition. We value thought decision-making. And when we do that, we have to make sure that every exercise engages the brain. So I would say I grew up with brawn, and I'm talking with a lot of coaches here. I think in the United States it's still we may say that we were looking for intelligent players because I saw Tyler uh, Lepore's, you know, U.S. national team caliber player. He said the number two things they're looking for is game understanding and responsibility, right? So someone that's going to take that initiative and be responsible. But if I walk around anywhere from Philly to California, you will not see that being trained. You do not see game understanding being trained you see technical execution being trained. So can anybody learn it? Yes. I've worked with girls in Spain last year that were six years old, and it was their first training. What they can learn is, you are the master of your own fate. You've got the ball. You have options. I can pass it this way. I can pass it that way. I can pass it that way. I can pass it that way. What do you want to do? And they can do it. I'm not saying they make great decisions, but you make it cognitively simple, so you don't put them in the face of great adversaries. You put them in restricted environments, but ones in which they still have to make a decision. The moment I put them in an unopposed situation, I've made the decision. If I tell Maria to pass it to Eva, I'm not developing decision-making because I made the drill. I made all the decisions. But if I give Maria a ball and I say, you've got Ava, you've got Susie, you've got uh, Sky over there, and you have this one bad person in the middle, you make a decision. They can do that at six years old. And then you stop and they watch them. I'll pass it to Ava. Great. How did that go? Well, it was stolen. Well, who's over here who's open? You can pass it that way. So if you start with six-year-olds and you say, You're, you are going to make decisions. What do you want to do? And then you don't slaughter them for every bad decision they make. You develop decision makers. And guess what? When you practice decision making with the guidance of a good coach, a mentor that trusts you, that, that has entrusted them, their development to you as well, then you are in a sportive environment. What's the worst thing that can happen if a six-year-old makes a decision? They make the wrong decision. I can't tell you how many coaches ask me, that's fine, you live in Barcelona, et cetera, et cetera, but my kids can't make decisions and they can't kick a ball, so I'm gonna dummy it down so far, and then you know what happens. Child's bored, coach is frustrated, and no decision takes place. So when are you gonna introduce decision making? At seven? At eight? At nine? What, what's, what's the age that you want them to start thinking? On average, and I now live in Spain, the, the players that come to our academy in Spain are on average three or four years behind a average player. Not a Barcelona player, that's the outlier. If I take an average player from a good club here, Richmond, you name the rep, something, and you put them into my, the humble club in my town, which has a very humble club, they're three years behind. They're not three years behind in kicking a ball. They're three years in behind in understanding the relationships of where, when, and why to kick a ball. Because someone at six told that child they were not smart enough to think. At seven, they said, well, we're not gonna let you think. At eight, we're not gonna let you make decisions. At nine, and then at 12, we want them to be experts at making decisions. How ludicrous is that if we don't want, if we want children not to make decisions, then we just set up the drills that they don't have to decide. But then on Saturday, when they have to make decisions, we have only one choice. We have to tell every player in real time what they should do with the ball. And then you have 20 parents doing the same. Susie, shoot, pass, cross the ball. I've seen parents on a penalty kick tell their child to kick the ball in the net. As if they didn't know that. So I've also seen coaches screaming up in the sound line, 
exactly every play of the game. But if I ultimately want the intelligence to be on the field, I have to start at six. Because by the time they're 16, they will be masters. And you made reference to it, Xavi. Xavi didn't become Xavi because he just started making decisions at 18 years old on his debut for Barcelona. Xavi started making decisions at seven, at eight, at nine, at 10, at 11. So when he was 18, he was ready to make decisions in Camp Nou. How many children in the United States don't get to make decisions with this sort of autonomy, with this sort of support, with this sort of tranquility to play the game in the United States? I know because when I, I've done surveys, the, one of the first things they say was, they say, I say, ask them a question. What would you tell your A coach about helping you? They say, one, we're not trying to lose, so calm down. That's what they tell us as coaches, implying that we're a little out of order. We're not trying to lose. A child is not going out trying to lose. They're trying to make the best decisions and execute those decisions within their capacity. And two, they say, let us play. Let us play. Don't speak to us explicitly every time we make a mistake because the game is full of mistakes. You'd have to speak all the time. So, slightly playing devil's advocate here. <clears throat> Seven years old, you know, six years old, you're talking about coaching players. At what cost? Shouldn't six or seven years old be strictly participative in terms of literally just play? That it's about having fun. And you're talking about front-loading cognition. And I don't well, I'm not talking with a six-year-old. I'm talking a six-year-old like, try not to lose the ball. Where's the bad person? I don't care. You call it sharks in Florida or bears that's in still, California. That's still coaching, isn't right? it? Right, I mean, it's, yeah. So you're, you're setting up the environment. You're having fun with it at age-appropriate yeah. levels. But it doesn't mean I have to play duck, duck, goose for two minutes and then play, you know, cross the sharks for four minutes. I'm not Sesame Street. Yeah. Right? I mean, I'm, I'm not a clown. I'm not a, it's not fun. It's not funny in the sense that I'm, I'm, you know, I'm entertaining them. It's not a birthday party. Yeah. Children want to be engaged. Yeah. They want to be with their friends. And they want to compete. They, they you, you know, this don't keep score. You ask a six-year-old, they know how many goals they scored. So at six, let them play, but give them the environment in which they can score a lot of goals and have a lot of fun and make a lot of friends. You know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying, listen, we're going to work through perception and conception and we're on principle number two to a six-year-old. What I say to Eva is, Eva or Maria, you have the ball. Where do you want to pass it? There's the bad person. The bad person's in a yellow penny. So what I'm interested in, though, is when do you start using that language, perception, conception, etc.? When does do, to create a Javi or an Iniesta, when do you start having, using those words? And when do players deliberately and consciously start having a relationship with, with space? That it's yeah. not just learned implicitly through your activities, that it's literally... You know, because I intellectualize it as I'm going to look at space, I'm going to analyze space, I'm going to analyze the ball, where the ball is, where the players are, etc., etc. But I've got an adult brain. So is it at 13, 14, 15 that you start having those conversations? You just change the language. Okay? So, you want me to give you an example? Yeah. Okay, I don't know if everybody can see this. I have Eva, I have Maria, I have uh, Dan over there, I have Gary over here. You have some water here, you need some water for your throat. Okay. I got Juan. Here's Ava. She's six years old, right? Yeah. We're going to have some fun. Okay. This is a bear or a shark. I don't care what you call it, right? A bad person. You know, this is the, this is the bad person. So if I, if I, in this environment, and Ava's never played before, if I let the bear out of the middle, she's going to just lose the ball. So it's going to become complete failure, right? But if the bear is in a pen, and I build a little pen through cones, I'll use quick goal cones, apparently, because they're, they're help, you know, they brought me over here. So quick goal cones. Um, and I say, okay, keep the ball away from the bear. I can also say, okay, just you pass it, you pass it, you pass it. Or I can just say play. With little kids, I would play a lot. And, and I would say, but you say, it's okay even here to say, let's, you know, let's activate this a little bit. And then you say, if the bear is here, what do you do? But the bear can't, he can't bite you because there's a little pen here so if the bear's over here where do you want to pass the ball you'd be surprised a six-year-old that never played the game before will not pass the ball there 
So she's already starting spatial relationships. She's going to pass the ball to Maria or to Gary over here. And when she does, you're like, great decision. And when she passes it there, you say, oh, it passed it into the bear's den. I know this is silly language, right? But she was six no, years old. No, you could use this. She never played the game. Right? The alternative, this would be great. Right? So this is great. And then you applaud, you applaud, right? And then when they're good enough, which was two days later at trading with these girls, we make the bear's pen really big. And then a day later, we let the bear out of the pen. We pick up the quick old cones. And then the bear goes. And then when you want to add another one, I need your cup. Then the bears have to hold hands. And I have to perceive two bears, but they're holding hands, so they're really one big bear. The point is, it's a silly game, and the language is age-appropriate for a girl or a boy that's never played the game. But ultimately, she's still making decisions. She's making decisions based upon what she sees are her best options. And when she fails, there's a consequence. Okay, that, she doesn't want that. And when she's successful, I applaud her like hell. Awesome. Now it's Gary's turn to make a decision. So the alternative is this. And I saw it, I'm not gonna say by who today, but it drove me crazy. I couldn't stay for the whole session because my stomach turns. I can line kids up like this. You know, Gary, Dan, Maria, Ava, Eric, and Skye. And I can say, pass the ball. Oh good, yay, good for you. Pass the ball back. Good for you. And trust me, they're bored silly. It's not fun. It's not fun. You try it. I, if you put yourself through that training for 20 minutes, in four, I've done it with coaches. They last four minutes. A coaching course, I tried it. I did this exercise that I saw in Seattle. I won't say by what club. Seattle United. But I won't say the name of the club. And they were doing this. And then they did this. They took all of these... 14-year-old boys, we've got it on video because my Barcelona coach that was with me videotaped it to document the stupidity of, of it. And then they had 14-year-old boys, all 20 of them line up, and they dribbled all the way across the field doing step-over moves. They weren't doing anything but goofing around because it's a silly drill. There's no brain involved. The coach had to yell at them more and more and more and more. The most creative they were was when they went to play get water, where they were doing this combination of bo bottle flipping game. They had to literally dribble across the field, do 20 step over moves, dribble back. It's mindless. There's no decisions. It's boring. It's not engaging. It's not fun. It's not social. And it's not going to lead me to any success on the weekend. So why would I prepare a child for a math test next Friday and not teach them or support the development of the math they need to complete the test. But we do it, we do it every day on the fields across the United States. We think that this is going to look a lot like a match. It doesn't. And if it's not cognitively faithful to the match, you will not develop a player capable of playing football. And that's it. So the best players will be outliers. They'll figure out some way to play, and they'll figure it out on their own. But they will be the outliers. I would rather have the norm be an intelligent player capable of making decisions that's been making decisions since six years old so that by the time I have to, my friend there was from Chicago High School, okay, I would like to give them, you know, he can't recruit. Remember that question? He said he couldn't recruit. I would like to give him 20 players that are intelligent, capable, and have the character to enter into Chicago Public School and play for him successfully. But I can guarantee you he's not getting those players. He's not getting players because for the first time at high school, he's teaching them about spatial relationships and how to play Chicago West. It's too late. It's three, four, or up to five years too late. And if you go to Spain, I don't know how it is in England, but if you go to Spain, kids at six and seven are thinking in ways that children that are 11 or 12 are here. And until we nurture that, we won't develop that. And if we don't develop that at your level, you won't get the players you want. And at the national level, although that's not necessarily the highest priority, the national level, with all due respect to the players we have, they're, they're great players by American standards. Who, who, who on the American team would you say is even close to any one of the top 10 midfielders in Spain? Seriously. I mean, you, I'll ask Greg now, right? I'll ask Greg, but seriously. Can you imagine being the national team coach of Spain and picking a midfield? And we're looking for midfielders. We, we got to find someone to replace Michael Bradley soon, I guess. Right? That's the ultimate consequence of poor coaching at the youth levels. 
And until we change the coaching at the youth levels, we'll still produce players that are not capable of playing at the highest levels. Hopefully Christian can change that, go to Chelsea. You know, Claudio Reina in the past played at a high level. Our goalkeepers have done well. But Christian, I hope he gets to Chelsea and sets up, paves the way for playing intelligent football for Sari, who's going to expect it of him. But we need 40 Christian Pulisics, not one upon which we put all our hopes. So we'll see about that, because well, at least in 2026, we qualify automatically here in the United States. So we're for Canada and the United States and Mexico, we'll sure be there. So. All right, let's open it up for questions. Yes, Kat. Yeah, so the, if I interpret the question right, is you have players that have come to you and they've been joysticked or playstationed or whatever it's called, right? And now you're trying to have them make decisions in the context of the game and who gets frustrated, you or the players? Them, because they're not a... Yeah, so that's, un right. so that's unfair of us, right? That's unfair of us to say, here, you don't know how to swim, go into the deep end. So that's on us. So unfortunately, that's, on your, that's your responsibility as a coach at that next level. Ideally, somebody before you at six would have fed you a player that's more capable. And, and don't confuse autonomy with frivolous decision-making. Creativity is not dribbling in, you know, on a solo campaign to nowhere. We really structure the way that we approach the game. That's your game model. So for us, it's a, you know, playing a 4-3-3 with a sitting midfielder, or a, and seven aside, it's 3-2-1, 1-3-2-1, or 3-2-3 and nine aside. So it's, it's very structured. So the architecture is very structured. But how to work through that architecture is where a child has to make a decision. So creativity isn't like, and I see this today, oh, we, we just let them go and dribble because we want creative players. No, that's stupid. Those are stupid players. I've seen them. They dribble into other people. You say, great, five step over moves, and you ran into your goalie. Really good. We're going that way. So the onus upon you is to say, okay, you have to start at what we'll talk about tomorrow and present it tomorrow at 11. You have to recognize their cognitive capacity. What are they capable of perceiving? What level are they in terms of their relationships? And can they make decisions that can be effective on the weekend? And if they can't, unfortunately for you, you have to back up. You have to back up to the cognitive level of your players and take them through that crash course, hoping that you will pass along a better player to the collegiate coach or to the next level coach or the, you know, the, the under 16 or 18 team. The question is, are you willing to do that? Because you are now going through an arduous learning journey and it won't go like, oh, you're just starting to teach them decision making. Now they're excellent. You have to go through the arduous task of taking them backwards, maybe, frustrating, supporting them, explaining to parents what the hell is going on, and then bringing them through, knowing that you know what you're doing for them will pay off. So unfortunately, the onus is upon you. But now imagine you could have influence on the under six coach, or the under eight coach, or the under 10 coach. Imagine your club DOC made thinking a high priority and explain that to the parents. Now you have what was mentioned in the first presentation, culture. You have a culture of intelligence. You have a culture, as Arne mentioned, of discipline. And so, from the youngest to the oldest, we are developing intelligent players capable of thinking on their own. So, by the way, parents, you need to shut up. Because when you are joysticking your child, you're robbing them of their learning process. You're robbing them of their decisions. So at this club, our parents don't yell at children. On this team, our parents applaud and relax and enjoy and buy an ice cream later, right? And that, unfortunately, as I said, it's easy for me because I don't mind being an asshole and being hard on that, but I can't say that's gonna work for everybody because I think there's a, you, you're responsible for nurturing their development. Parents don't come into the classroom and yell at them in mathematics. They don't go into the ballerina studio, I don't think, and tell them to stand on their toes. In almost every other profession, they're not in the surgery when the ACL's done, they're not in there with the knife. So why should parents be on the sideline thinking that they're surgeons? They're not. So but that's coming back to culture. When everybody understands within a club, coaches do this, players do this, parents do this, and everybody knows what they don't do. And then within a team, every player understands the responsibility. Then you have a culture of excellence. And unfortunately, if you're getting kids at 14 that have never been thinking, you've got, you know, you can pass them on. We call that the status quo. You know, I was a ninth grade teacher. The kids that I were getting, on average, had a third or fourth grade reading level. I have two choices. Pass them on, because that's just what the system, and then I don't have to make waves. Or I say, this is bullshit. We've got to get from fourth grade to ninth grade in one year. 
and take responsibility for that, knowing that failure is going to be part of that. So I wish there was an easy answer, but ultimately the burden is on you. To, but ultimately you have to make a decision, which is are you willing to put in the work back up to the cognitive level where your players are and take them on a journey further than they've ever been and support them like hell where they're doing it and explain to the parents why you're doing it and for whom you're doing it and what you need them to do and not do. That makes sense. As I said, I, I don't have any problems being hard like that, but I can't will that upon you because I don't know your parents and I don't know the culture in which you work. But thanks for the question. La last one, last one. How do you sell that to the parents? Yeah, so how do you sell it to the parents is the question because you weren't on a microphone. So how do you sell it to the parents in a culture where parents are looking for instant results, right? Again, I, I'm, I don't give a good advice. You know what I did? I had the parents organize spaghetti dinners. Because parents will argue just as much about spaghetti dinners as they will coaching. So I say that kind of jokingly, but I actually did that. When I was coaching high school, I, like a you know, magician, I said, look over here. So I got the parents focused on anything but the field. I know it's a silly trick. But then we had competitions of who was doing the best spaghetti dinner, right? What I mean by that is you have to, one, explain to parents that this is your culture, this is why you're doing it. Again, I, I don't have difficulty with parents because I don't have difficulty explaining to them exactly why we're doing it. And if they know that you're doing it for their child and you are intelligent enough to articulate that to them, then you have them, right? The other alternative, again, it's about alternatives. So you either have the arduous task of explaining to them that you are honing your craft, that you're honing the child's craft, and that you need to have some space to do that for their benefit, and explain that you want the intelligence on the field and not screaming in from the sideline. That's one. And then two, you have to have a relationship with them that your kids go back and every day say, that's an awesome coach. I love playing, what is your name? Danny, okay, Danny, we met at the bar. So I love playing for Danny, because if a kid goes back and says, I love playing for Danny, that carries a lot of weight. If a parent sees that your ch their child has a mentor, has a role model, they may be more forgiving about a weekend showcase loss. But if you haven't established the relationship, the rules, the culture, and the reason why, it's not much. So what I would do is explain it to the parents, everything you're doing, explain it to them. Most of them aren't smart enough to argue with you. And then put them on some other task, like who's doing the road trip spaghetti dinners or chocolate milk or sliced oranges or whatever you're doing to get the, the parent committee focused on anything other than the football field. Those are the two, that, I mean, I said, that's what worked for me. And then, as I said, we had great spaghetti dinners and I had no conflict with parents, but I was coaching high school, right? The other thing we did, and this is not for you at a club, but that I worked at a high school was we had the liberty to choose in the season, the players chose, you talked about culture. The first day of training, I said, there's two ways to approach this season. One is, I'm gonna coach to win, meaning we're gonna go win and I'll make decisions based upon who I think can help us do that, which could mean that not everybody's gonna get equal playing time, or we're gonna play participatory. This was a high school team in California. Okay, so it didn't have the same pay to play because, okay, so I understand that. And I said, practice I said over by the dirt patch you have to go over privately during training you have to mark in the sand which you prefer the left sandbox you trust me to put the best players and we're gonna go for the state cup or on the right side you make a mark anonymously it means that you prefer that I coach on 100% egalitarian participation system at 18 players I said make the decision assuming that you're not going to play as much as you would like 17 marked, we go for the State Cup, and won. Why was it important? It was important because the players chose the culture, and then when I had to speak with the parents, I said, talk to your child about the choice of how we're playing, how we're training, who's being selected, and what they're committed to. So the kids made my job much easier. I know you work at a club, so you probably can't do that. You're supposed to win the State Cup. But there are coaches that don't have that same pressure and can manage it better. So thanks for the question. Appreciate it. In line with that, my voice is going. In line with that, and I don't know if Todd said this, do a survey from the kids. Do a survey. What, what, do, what do you kids, what do you want? Give them choices, 10 choices. Do you want to win? Do you want to have fun? Do you want to learn? Do you want to be coached? Do you want to be with friends? 
and get them to grade it from 1 to 10 or 1 to 20 if you've got 20 options. Every single time that's been done, the FA did that, and they, they, the English FA, and winning came something like 64th on the list. Right, Todd's just said the United States, it was 48th. Um, one of the world's leading researchers in that is a woman called Amanda Visek. Um, and she has something called Fun Maps. And I think she's in Florida somewhere. And exactly the same research. Winning comes miles down on the list. Okay? So, um, do a multiple choice for kids. The kids will, will answer that. Winning will be down low. Then you show that to the parents. Boom. Drop the mic. So the last thing I'll say is, we make, an, we make an assumption that training this way doesn't bring you results, right? But I'm a proponent of quality and results, okay? I, and that's actually the quote that Johan made, I wrote down. So the one that you see that's about quality, I remember when he said it, I was at the kitchen table. He said, you need both quality and results, right? And, and that's important. Because quality, without, quality with, without results in the highest level, you get fired, right? It's, it doesn't make sense. And results without quality is boring. So we make an assumption that if we're going to teach children to make decisions, that they will fail. They won't. The exact opposite happens. You may need a little patience. But ironically, and there's some people that are trying this, if you're willing to go through that arduous task, you can get quality and results. And then what have you got? You've got Pep Guardiola's Barcelona in, in Michigan or in Philadelphia. So you don't have to assume that if I let my children make decisions and build their capacity to be autonomous creatures in real time, taking on those challenges, that they're going to lose. They're not. They're not. They're going to be better players. And whether individually they have better opportunities to play at a higher level or collectively have a chance to demonstrate but at the end of the day, they're going to stay longer in the game. They won't drop out at 13. And they're going to say that you were the reason why they stayed. And when you're my age and you get those messages, that's going to mean a hell of a lot more than it is at your age. You're going to realize that you are the reason why somebody stayed in the game. And then you're going to forget. I don't remember what we won or what we lost, but I always remember those messages. If you've kept 10, 20, 40 more kids in the game at 14, 16, or 18, then you've already won. You've already won. You've won with quality and you've won with results. So I want to thank you guys for hosting me. I've had the opportunity to be on podcasts with you guys and it's late, I know. So thank you very much and we'll see you out tomorrow. Thanks so much to Todd for his time and his insight there. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Yeah, I've had Todd on the podcast before. Big, big fan of not only his work, but how he challenges. You can hear how passionate he really is about you know, getting us to question what we're doing and even just questioning the role of coaching. And I think, you know, there's a school of thought that Iceland or Germany or wherever the statistics are that they have X amount of A-licensed coaching. So more coaching produces better players, but it doesn't. Like, that's not the case. Better coaching produces better players. And I think we had Mick Beal on here last year and he said something similar and I really like Todd's point where he said we are taking a game that is inherently fun, motivating and social and we are not making it fun and that's on us as coaches. And, and then sometimes in the development stage we say that well it's not just about producing the next players for Barcelona, it's about getting kids in the game and you know Todd had all those points in that interview there. He said that if practice is more engaging if it's more enjoyable if it's less boring if the coach isn't micromanaging then yeah people will enjoy it more kids will come back and they'll commit to the coach and I love that he brought that together in the end what he was saying about buy-in someone asked about getting parents to buy in and he just said about bypassing the parents and and getting the kids to buy in because the kids will come back and say I had a great time that was such a fun practice I love playing for coach x and I think that's that's so powerful an example of, yeah, we can talk about this exercise being game realistic and how it relates to some tactical model, but you know, at the young levels and even in the older age groups, if it's not enjoyable, if it's not fun, 
they won't want to come back they'll disengage and then you've got a different set of problems there so back to one of the quotes i wrote down it's become more professional it's become more expensive we have more coaches there are better facilities uniforms are better but fundamentally that doesn't change football the training has to be better so i hope you enjoyed it i would love to hear your thoughts but for me I think that's a big, big point to be made that the bland clinical training sessions that we're throwing at that are game realistic today are actually counterproductive in a lot of cases, not in all cases, but in a lot of cases that they are disengaging young footballers who are looking at the game uh, in a way that we didn't. We dreamt of doing this. We dreamt of playing them. We expressed ourselves. All these things that caused us to love the game, to get emotionally engaged, to, to become coaches, to want to spread that to a next generation. Uh, are we doing that ourselves today? And, and sometimes we're all guilty of, of not doing that there. So we'd love to know your thoughts on that. As always, at Gary Kernin on Twitter, at Gary Kernin on Instagram. Really appreciate you listening to the, the Roadshow series. That was Arna, Tony and Todd. Big thanks to Danny Abrams for coming on as well. Uh, big thanks for all the coaches who attended. And then, of course, big thanks to Sports Lab 360 for getting on board as well. Please check them out. Thanks so much. Have a great week. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. For more coaching topics, sessions, and resources, Head on over to Coach Kernine on Facebook or visit the website at www.modernsoccercoach.com.